In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Hello and welcome to The Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. And today we have some exciting topics. We'll start off by talking about um, some COVID updates. Then we'll talk about the way that Trump has changed his rhetoric with um, regards to his pursuit of the 2020 election. And then we'll discuss um, some updates on Biden and specifically making sure we focus on um, continuing activism and pushing even if and even when, fingers crossed, he becomes president of the United States. Yes, it has been quite a COVID week. Uh, actually, personally for me as well, because as soon as I finished recording the podcast last week, uh, I realized that my throat was really sore. And at first I thought, oh, it's because I've been using it a lot. And then it was like, no, no, you're sick. And I was like, what? No, I'm, I can't be sick. <laughs> During a pandemic? During a pandemic. Yeah, but uh, it turns out it was just a very minor cold, and it only lasted for like one day. But that's one of the interesting things that you don't really think too much about with the pandemic, which is the fact that COVID-19 is another disease. It's not Mm -hmm. the disease. It's another disease. So you can still be sick, and it just be something completely different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my question is where you got a minor cold uh, with all this quarantining. Like I know you're very strict and yeah, so I'm we, wondering Yeah, we have been strict, but we had some uh 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 we we did have some guests over and we did try mm. to maintain quarantine as much as possible. Um but uh you know the kids were involved and kids are little disease bags, so you Yeah, know. yeah. <laughs> Especially of common colds. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was just a common cold, so not to worry. I am completely all right. We're all all right. Um but I did almost give my poor mother a heart attack. So uh you know, I I, I apologize for that mom. <laughs> which which would potentially be even worse with like hospitals running. Yeah, yeah, so it you would gotta be. be. You gotta be careful about all these things right now. Uh, everything is wider implications. Yeah. Um, so speaking of COVID, Michael, why don't you update us on the COVID numbers? Sure thing. So worldwide, we've hit uh, 11.7 million cases, which is a 10% increase over last week. Um, We have hit 540,000 deaths and 6.6 million recovered, which is about 56% of the total case count, um, which is an improvement over last week, which was at 55%. So that's that's good. Even though there was a 10% increase in cases, recovered rate um, also increased. That's that's a good thing. In the U.S., actually, there is um, a little bit better news, actually. So three three million cases, which is crazy high. I mean... I feels like if it was, it feels like it was just a couple of weeks ago we were two million we were like breaking yeah. that we were breaking that um, yeah. that wall and now we're here, which uh, the three million is an eleven percent increase over last week, with one hundred and thirty three thousand deaths and one point three million recovered. So that's forty three percent of total cases recovered, um, compared to forty one percent last week. So actually that's like 
pretty good progress on the recovery rate. Um, so overall, like things are still really bad and, you know, 11% increase in cases week over week is, is more than we'd want to see, right? Like we'd want to see much lower than that, but still at least more people are getting recovered, uh, which is, which is a good thing. Yeah. It did feel like for a little bit that people in the United States just decided COVID-19 that's like so last month. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. apparently uh, you, you can't really ignore a global pandemic because it, mm-hmm. it, it exists even if you are annoyed with it. Yeah. Um, who would have thunk? Yeah. So, b- but one thing that's kind of interesting is the spike in cases is for reasons that might surprise some of you. Mm-hmm. So, You've definitely been hearing a lot of arguments from people on the right, from a few uh, Republicans. Uh, Dan Crenshaw, uh, Representative Dan Crenshaw, made this argument, which Mm. is the reason why there is a significant spike is because of all these protests. You know, the the protest over the murder of George Floyd. And this was this was a concern that I had as well. And, you know, I did mention it on the podcast. I still I still pointed out the fact that to, you know, there is definitely an argument to be made that protesting against racial injustice when people are dying and having their rights trampled on, it can be argued that that is essential. Mm-hmm. But I, I had those same concerns that this would lead to another spike. So then the question is, has it? And what's interesting is, it's not actually the protests that have been causing the spike. So recently... There was a 60-page research paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research in which they basically took like 300 of the cities that had uh, some of the most protesting and they juxtaposed that with the increase in cases of COVID-19 in those specific cities. And what they found was that the rate of transmission within those cities with the most protests actually seems to either not change at all or slightly decrease, meaning that somehow the rate of transmission had been slowing down a bit in these cities. Which, you know, when you hear something like that, that is on its face, super non-intuitive, um, you definitely want to look deeper. You want to yeah. double click to make sure that, you know, this isn't a study of six people, you yeah. know? So one, one thing that I think that, you know, even people on the left have kind of made the mistake of is basically saying, oh, well, this means that protests have no effect on it. That yeah. the protesting is a virus-free activity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a virus-free activity or that it's 100% safe. That's not necessarily what this study is saying. So mm-hmm. it is important to actually dig deeper into it and figure out, what what are what are they actually arguing so mm-hmm. first off those are the numbers you know the numbers are that within the cities that have experienced a large degree of protesting uh the rate of transmission has been has either slightly decreased or stayed around the same mm-hmm. so this study offers several potential explanations for why that could be now to be clear these are hypotheses Mm -hmm. like these aren't these specific explanations have not been studied like we know what the numbers are so it is true that it hasn't 
uh, increased or in some t cases it's decreased, but we don't have concrete evidence that these are the reasons why. But he here's, the, here are, here's their hypotheses. One explanation is the fact that because of the protests, people that, don't, that aren't involved in the protests are more likely to stay inside mm -hmm. because of the perception of danger. You know, there's um, the perception that uh, the protests are violent, which, you know, most of them were pretty peaceful and uh, most of the violent ones were towards the beginning of it. But there's also the perception of if you get caught up in the crossfire, you know, with cops beating people and arresting reporters, that that could present a danger. So yeah. people that weren't being involved in the protests actually felt more of an incentive to stay home and thus social distance more. Yeah, and this is this has a couple of things with, about it. So first of all, they actually did get some data to confirm this hypothesis using mobile phone tracking. So they actually did find that more people were staying at home, um, and like the uh, the median time spent at home during the protest was lower um, than otherwise. So you know we actually have a confirmation that that this actually happened. There was more social distancing basically among people that abstained from the protest. Another implication of that is that, you know, it's kind of like a mixed result, right? Like, yeah, theoretically, you'd want, you know, everybody to support these kinds of things and participate in this protest. But that has the potential to actually exacerbate the spread of the disease. So the yeah. counterbalancing effect of people staying at home, which, you know, may or may not be a bad thing for the protest overall, um, did have this this positive effect on reducing the covid spread. Yeah, absolutely. Um also, uh, the study does point out the fact that it is very possible that there has been a slight increase in transmission among people at the protests. Mm -hmm. You know, it does leave that option open. Uh, and another potential explanation that it makes is that people that go to the protests, when you look at the demographics of the people that are, the, uh, that are at the protests, a lot of them are younger. And mm -hmm. younger people tend to have less severe versions of the virus. And it is very possible that some people who did actually get the virus, they got a very, a much less severe version of it, or mm -hmm. um, it was, it affected them in a less severe way. And because of this, they didn't go to the hospital and thus it did not get recorded as a result, which mm -hmm. does mean that there were store, still more people that got the virus, but it just didn't get reported. Now, the reason why that's important, that's an important distinction is because there has been an explosive rate of people with the disease that have been reported. So this could just be another factor contributing to more of a spread, but this does not contribute to the fact that reported cases have increased. Yeah, yeah totally. And uh, yeah, and that, that has another implication as well. It's that these, if these young people are getting this disease, if they had had a relatively minor case that wasn't reported but then or, or recorded, but then passed it along to someone else, thus increasing the overall level of cases in the area, that would be seen and yeah. reflected in the results of this study. So we know that, I, that for whatever reason, even if these people did get relatively minor cases, they weren't then going and passing those on to people getting more severe cases that did get recorded. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the third thing, the last thing, that they speculate is also um, practices 
from the types of people that would go to these protests. Now, it doesn't directly say this, but it's kind of pretty clear what they're trying to hint at. Uh, that's the fact that a lot of the people that are at these protests are liberals and thus more likely to listen to scientists, more likely to listen to experts saying, hey, put a mask on. Again, that's not to say that conservatives don't practice social distancing or that they don't wear masks, but statistically, liberals are more likely to take this virus more seriously. Thus, yeah. the people at the protests are more likely to be wearing masks. They're more likely to be observing social distancing and furthermore, these protests were primarily outside. And we do know that this virus spreads a lot more indoors than outdoors. Mm -hmm. So what all of this shows is the fact that the protests really do not account for the increase in, in, in coronavirus cases. Mm -hmm. That's not what's causing the explosion. So if you see that talking point, again... That's just not true. The, the statistics, yeah. the numbers do not show that. The analyses do not show that. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, like, that's important to keep in mind because you wonder if the analysis is so clear on this, why is it still a talking point that's coming out? And I was reading, I was reading one Fox News article about this specific thing, and it seemed to me like it was trying to use this false narrative as a way to discredit the, the protests <laughs> um, as like, and so, so the headline of this article said, quote, anti-police demonstrations may have sparked new coronavirus cases. Some cities now acknowledge, right? But then their lead, if you write, read a little further into the article, it says, quote, public statements and interviews with Fox news this weekend, officials in Los Angeles, Seattle, in Miami-Dade County, Florida, have indicated that some link between protests and new cases was at least possible. Yeah. A much, much weaker claim. Like, yeah, they say it's so, possible. Yeah, which, which of course, yeah, we it's possible. That. Yeah, we yeah. we acknowledge that on the podcast that it was possible. But sure. the numbers don't show that. The numbers just do yeah. not dictate that. And you know, I've been seeing yeah. some. Like some people in my feed that are more conspiracy theorists type people that are mm. like, oh, well, this just shows you that the scientists are totally just trying to make this up in order to like screw with Trump. It's like, come on, grow up. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, that's like, it's a pretty, like, first of all, there's no evidence for that, which I guess is at the heart of conspiracy theories. Yeah. But, but secondly, like there that's are, that's what good they want you to think. Yeah, there are good and confirmed hypotheses as to why there might be this effect. Yeah. So there's no reason to conclude that the science fundamentally is wrong because we have more science explaining why it's right. And even some of the some of the explanations even involve opening up the possibility that maybe it's just that uh, cases that result from the protests are just not reported as much. You know, yeah, it, totally. it leaves that open. That's possible. Yeah, exactly. You know, but at the end of the day, the spike that we're seeing right now in confirmed cases does not come from the protests. Exactly. So, that, so that's the really, important. yeah, and it should not be used as evidence for or or, or reason for um, shutting down any of these protests or being against them or anything like that. Because right now it just isn't supported. So what has contributed to the rise in COVID cases, Michael? So a number of things have contributed to that. So so first of all. We are not all riding the same ride together, 
right? Like when you look at the curve um, that we are all trying to flatten, or many of us are trying to flatten, the country is in many different places at at many different times. For example, New York City is seeing, um, you know, relatively low case counts. They're seeing decreases in their total number of cases because significantly they have flattened the curve already. You know, they were hit relatively hard early on um, and that curve has been flattened. A lot of the places where we're seeing cases now are places where um, they initially didn't really have much of a presence of the coronavirus. And then as they started to reopen, as people started to reopen, you know, too early, the coronavirus has, you know, moved into these areas. So we've seen like, so we, so we know that reopening too early and um, without sufficient testing and contact tracing is a huge issue. And that's, that leads to the second issue, which is that our um, response to coronavirus continues to be relatively weak. You know, we see, while we are seeing increases in total testing, um, our testing rate is, is far from, from the highest and far below what experts recommend for reopening. So if, if we recall, like experts recommended like millions of tests in order to be able to keep up with the constant changing nature and the spread of the disease and in order to sufficiently identify people that um, were infected so we could quarantine them and contact trace them. Well, we're not there yet by any means. Um, and so, so essentially we're seeing that these cases are coming from the continued relatively inadequate response, um, to coronavirus. Um, and so, you know, even though we're not even like in a second wave yet, as Dr. Fauci said a couple of weeks ago, um, we are seeing these increases in cases across the country. Um, for example, like in, in Washington, D.C., we're seeing an increase from people going to parties. Like people are getting together without masks at parties, and we've seen a bunch of increase in cases because of that. So ultimately, it's not because of people out there like trying to protest for their rights who actually have an argument for why it's worth the risk. It's because all of us, you know, are trying to get our haircuts and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but leaders, many of which within Republican politics, um, have been downplaying the virus, have been actively striking up uh, a competitive attitude towards experts like Dr. Fauci. And one of the most glaring examples of that is Kentucky Senator Rand Paul. So one thing that I think is important to keep referencing is Rand Paul is the same guy who was the first senator to test positive for COVID-19 and he had been tested because he had been in contact with several people who had the virus and he was supposed to like, he was recommended that he quarantine himself while mm -hmm. they were waiting the results of the test. But instead of that, while he was awaiting the results of the test, he went to the Senate gym, he worked out and he swam in the freaking pool. <laughs> so, so just to be clear, this is a guy who from the very beginning was an idiot personally with regard to the safety of other people. So we shouldn't listen to a damn thing that this guy says. So he has actively been 
um, very contemptuous towards uh, Dr. Fauci. In a Senate hearing, uh, he, he said straight up, and I quote, we shouldn't presume that a group of experts somehow knows what's best for everyone. That's the type of thing that you hear a drunk person retort like, oh, what do you know? You're just an expert. Mm -mm. Like that type of stupidity is just toxic. Yeah. And the fact that this is coming from a senator who has actual power over like how we uh, like uh, over over how we live our lives and mm. how we protect ourselves from this disease. Like he was complaining about the fact that he's not hearing any optimism from Dr. Fauci. Well, oh of course gosh. you're not hearing any optimism from Dr. Fauci. There's nothing to be optimistic about because yeah, dumbasses exactly. like you <laughs> have been continuing this bullshit message of, oh, everything's going to be fine. Just, you know, the government shouldn't be involved in any of this. The, just let everybody do what they want and we'll be fine. And it's like, oh, no, no, that's actually going to lead to thousands of people dying. So, so congratulations, idiot. Yeah. Seriously, it's like, <laughs> it's so anti-intellectual. Like, like, the move should be if we think that our information is insufficient, we should be pushing really hard to get more information, which is what we, like, we've been doing. Like, s since the beginning, the CDC and Fauci and everyone have been trying to make educated guesses about the right thing to do because information on this is scarce, right? Yeah. It's complicated, it's challenging, and it's only been around for a few months. We know way more than we did, but over the past few months, we've learned a tremendous amount. Like in the beginning, yeah. we knew relatively little. And so to say like, oh, well, to even point to past missteps, like, oh, well, we, maybe we didn't need to you know, follow your advice in this one way in the past, doesn't even discredit yeah. information today because it's new, better best information i mean that's that's the nature of science i mean michael and i were talking about this just before we started recording but the mm -hmm. nature of science is it's not that science is this stagnant group of ideas of how the world works mm -hmm. science is a process it's a process of gathering evidence to make you know hypotheses to make theories and ultimately to make conclusions so yeah. What that means is that sometimes if you don't have all of the evidence, you might make a conclusion that's not 100% correct. That happens. In fact, you're almost guaranteed to. That's the point. Yeah. Like that's why we continue to evaluate evidence. And one one important example I would say is, you know, the shift about mask wearing. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about the concept of mask wearing on the podcast where we talked about how um when it comes to wearing masks, that doesn't really protect you. Mm -hmm. That protects other people. And we made the point that if everybody were wearing masks, everybody would be safer. However, yeah. there is some evidence to suggest that if you are wearing a mask and you don't have COVID and another person is not wearing a mask and they do, that you could potentially be putting yourself at more of a risk. So because of that and because of also the fact that there were concerns that there might be shortages for, for hospital workers. Mm -hmm. There were suggestions by the CDC that people, you know, don't buy up a bunch of masks, but then they shifted on that because, yeah. you know, it, it, more information came out, more studies came out where they were like, okay, it makes a lot more sense for people to be wearing masks. Yeah. 
because, you know, as we argued, if everybody is wearing masks, you are going to prevent the spread. That was a situation in which they got it wrong mm-hmm. and they shifted it based on new evidence. But the thing is that this idea that Rand Paul is presenting and that he's presented in past arguments where he's basically said like, oh, Fauci, you're just pretending to be the, you know, the one true expert, like the end all be all on this. It's like, no, no, you're looking at science the way you look at politics. And that's not Mm -hmm. how you should be viewing science in a lot of, in a lot of ways, politics often is based on, you know, who personally said it, like uh, the truth of statements and I would actually argue this is a problem in politics, but the truth of a statement is often deter- is often uh, judged based on who said it. But that's not how scientists view it. Mm-hmm. The reason why Dr. Fauci is an expert on this disease is not because he has like good instincts or whatever. Sure. It's because it's not anything about him, really. No, it's because he studies it. He has access to these studies. He understands the physiology mm-hmm. of the human body. And yeah. because of that expertise, he's able to make suggestions. Yeah. See, that that's what it's all about. It's not about, like, he personally is a non-credible source because it's not about politics. Mm-hmm. It, it, th- that also goes for his statement about, like, be, being upset that Fauci was not saying anything optimistic. Yeah. Again, you're thinking about it in terms of politics. Sure. But this is not about politics. This is about science. Yeah. So yeah, step you're... aside... And let the adults talk. Yeah, it's not Fauci's job to try to sell whatever your response is to the American people. Like if an yeah. asteroid is heading at the at the U.S., it's, it's not the job of scientists to say, oh, but it looks like it has a smiley face, so there's a bright <laughs> side. <laughs> I mean, at that point, that might be a small comfort. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's know? for the politicians to do. <laughs> exactly. The scientists are supposed to tell us how we might avoid it or shoot it out of the air. Or like, you know, it, we do not want them wasting their time on the bright side. We want them minimizing the downside. That's yeah. the point. And just to put you know, some of these questions about mask wearing to bed, because I feel like, I feel like, you know, there's still people that are walking around without masks in public. It's like, it's still potentially somewhat of an open question to some people wear a mask. Like we know that the airborne transmission via respiratory aerosol particles represents like the main route by which this disease spreads. And, just just to be clear, like we're not talking about masks that are, are like small that have holes small enough to block virus particles, right? Like that's not that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about masks that are able to just catch the water droplets and the aerosol droplets that are leaving your mouth and trap them so they don't so the large droplets don't get out, split in, split into smaller droplets and then spread around and spread to more people. Yeah. So like one study indicated that in New York. Um, the daily new infection rate dropped by 3% per day after a policy requiring people to wear masks in public took effect. So yeah. remember, like we were just talking about the daily or, you know, the week over week increase was, was 10% over last week. Well, this could have been, you know, significantly reduced if, if everybody wore a mask in public. So just, it's a little uncomfortable, but just go ahead and do it because all the best information is indicating that it's the right thing to do at this point. And also one thing to be clear about, because I, you know, I don't want 
people to think that I'm accusing Rand Paul of saying something that he didn't. Um, he wasn't talking about mask wearing specifically. Sure, 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 sure. You know, he in this um, th- that was an example that I used of like, you know, science coming to a different conclusion based on new evidence. New evidence yeah. um, that wasn't what he was saying. He wasn't trying to say that, you know, Fauci is not an expert and nobody should wear masks. He was making arguments about reopening, you know, mm-hmm. how we should start reopening because um, specifically schools, because kids are less likely to, to like contract the virus, which it's not necessarily that they're less likely to contract it. It's that it doesn't affect them as much, but you're still, you know, that's still you still need to take into account the teachers the staff and the parents yeah so exactly there are still dangers to schools opening up even if kids even if most kids are probably going to be fine mm-hmm. exactly um so the last point that i want to make on this is there's there's an interesting sort of shift by trump about mask wearing that mm-hmm. happened recently so if you'll recall, Trump has been resisting wearing masks for a while. Like he basically, after the CDC said, you all should wear masks, he was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, and, and again, remember, wearing a mask is not necessarily about protecting yourself. It's about protecting other people. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, as soon as Trump heard that, like there was no way he was ever going to do it. <laughs> um <laughs> So apparently he's now changed his tune. He even went so far at one point as to say that wearing a mask makes him look weak as a leader of the United States, which is just idiotic. Mm -hmm. But recently he was in an interview where he was asked about mask wearing again. And he was like, oh, no, yeah, yeah, I'm going to wear masks. I'm going to start wearing masks in public. You know, I think I look cool. I think it makes me look like the Lone Ranger. Which, you know, side note. The Lone Ranger wore the mask on his eyes, not his mouth, but whatever. Um, (laughs) Not at all relevant to the conversation, but whatever. (laughs) Um, But that's an interesting tonal shift. And Mm -hmm. it made me wonder what caused that. Well, it turns out, and again, he hasn't made a direct reference to this, but it turns out just a few days before Trump made this announcement, Goldman Sachs came came out with a study that showed that mask wearing could actually save the domestic economy a 5% hit in the GDP. So finally, a study that is speaking Trump's language. Mm-hmm. You know, you put out a study that says this many people will die unless you wear masks. Eh, who cares? But it might hurt the economy. <gasps> but, 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 but money, but the economy, but the economy. Again. That's what, Trump's, that's what Trump cares about. But you know what? I'll even put that aside for a second. Because good. I want him to wear a mask. I want him to encourage his followers to wear a mask. If, it, if what it takes for Trump to wear a mask is to make the economic argument because he's a sociopath who can't relate to the fact that humans are dying, fine. Whatever gets him to do it. What's crazy to me is that somehow he hadn't put that together in his own head or heard that from some from a member of his staff or something like that. Like it's like shutting down the economy and keeping everyone home, as we've talked about many times, is a blunt force instrument, right? Yeah. It's just a, a 
muscle through it kind of measure. We've been talking about since the beginning that a more targeted, more um, like scientifically influenced approach is the right one. And so following the advice, using masks, testing extensively, um, doing contact tracing, being targeted about quarantining, all of those things are things that can minimize the economic impact whilst continuing to save lives. And we like literally the experts have been saying from the beginning, like we should do these things. And somehow like now it starts to get through to him that this is the way to save the economy. Like saving lives and saving the economy are very much related, you know, like saving lives will help the economy. Taking the proper action to protect people, to do extensive testing, investing where it counts in fighting this virus will help save lives and save the economy. I don't understand how he's how he and his administration are still pushing for this dumb version of reopening where they do some testing and some contact tracing, but not nearly enough. And they're not nearly putting the resources behind it in the organization that they should when they know that the best way to do both is to really invest in in fighting this pandemic in these targeted, reasonable scientific approaches. I don't get it. And now it's time for one of our more positive segments, Tips for Good. So, Michael, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Nathan, we do Tips for Good because Mary had a little lamb who went up the water spout, and everywhere that Mary went, it drowned the spider out. Um, And also, you know, because it makes the world a little bit of a better place. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 also the the water spout thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let, let's not That's forget really about important. the water spout. We should yeah. not forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> so Nathan, what's our tip for good this week? Our tip for good this week is think critically about statistics. So statistics are important factual data points that help us to observe reality in an evidence-based manner. And you often hear statistics used in politics. However, numbers can often be presented in a way that's manipulative, that doesn't tell the whole story. And it's really important that no matter what the statistic is, even if it, especially if it's a statistic that backs up a side that you personally agree with, Mm -hmm. you need to think critically about it. What does it mean? Why are things that way? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is incredibly easy to lie with statistics. Mm. It's not always intentional. Sometimes you're just looking for the biggest headline or something like that. But, you know, just to give like a couple of examples, you know, it really matters in, in, in evaluating these numbers, you know, what the underlying factors and facts are that support them, right? Like it, it matters if, you know, like, is 10,000 a big number? Well, depends. It's a lot of bugs in your house. <laughs> it's not a lot of dollars on a mortgage. You know, it depends a lot. And like, yeah. you know, is 30% a big increase? Yes, it's a big increase. But a 30% increase of something with a 0.0003 probability of happening only brings that probability up to 0.004. Yeah. And so 
You know, it makes a really big difference what these numbers are describing. And so when you hear things, especially a, a single number that purports to tell the whole story, you got to dig deeper. Yeah. One example that, um, that, I, that comes to mind, which we've actually talked about on this podcast, is the statistic that the United States has a higher number of COVID tests than any other country. Mm -hmm. Again, of course we do. We have a significantly higher population than most countries. Now, maybe not China. And so maybe we're doing better than better at uh, testing than China is, but it's still a misleading number. Another number, actually an, another great example, which you often hear in politics is we have a record number of people who are working. Mm -hmm. And also we have a record number of people who are unemployed. But Nathan, how can both those things be true? Yeah. The interesting thing is that both of those can be true at the same time. And that's because that is a data point that is based on a raw number. It's not based on a percentage. It's based on a raw number. Mm -hmm. And the United States working population increases because our population increases. Mm -hmm. The global population has been steadily increasing since, I don't know, the beginning of time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so those two numbers, they might sound good as talking points, but they're completely irrelevant. Exactly. Which is why you anchor things like that in, in, with additional facts, with additional numbers. So inflation is a good example. So if the average, you could say that the average wage over the past, you know, 10 or 15 years has gone up by 10%, but adjusted for inflation, that might be flat. Yeah. And no, adjusted for cost has... of living, it's negative. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, because when you look at the numbers about wages in the United States, they have adjusted for inflation, they have remained completely stagnant. Mm -hmm. Like, but inflation might change the raw amount of money that people have. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't keep up with inflation, then the number's meaningless. Exactly. So, and so that's our tip for good this week. Just think critically about statistics. And that's tips for good. So you may have noticed over the past couple of weeks a change in Trump's rhetoric about the United States, specifically related to um, his run for president. So it was pretty clear early on that, you know, before COVID happened, Trump was planning to run on prosperity, right? He was running, he was planning to run on, you know, I made the economy great. And if you want the economy to continue to be great, um, vote for me. And so, and like, that's clear in his slogan, keep America great. It's, it's kind of like, an obvious choice if you're the incumbent and things are going fine. Yeah. But then things started going badly. Well, I would argue that things were already going badly, but Fair enough. they had, <laughs> but they then the global have... pandemic started. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was harder to pretend that things were going well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. And so his tone and the way he's been speaking have shifted. And I feel like, one of the, the most stark and clear examples was over the July 4th weekend. He gave two speeches, one on July 3rd at Mount Rushmore and one um, on July 4th in Washington, D.C. And both speeches were incredibly divisive and 
were designed to strike fear into conservative hearts and not for the usual reasons. Yeah. So we've used this term on the podcast many times, straw man. Yes. So I just want to reiterate what this term means. So a straw man is an argument that is a false version of your opponent's argument that you then argue against. And so undoubtedly if, easily defeat. Yeah. So if I were having a debate with Michael and I were to say that part of his policy platform is the killing of four-year-olds and drinking their blood. And I were to say, you know what? I'm morally against that. I don't think we should do that. To I thunderous think, applause. <laughs> <laughs> to thunderous applause. I think that that would further contribute to the moral denigration of our society. Therefore, I believe that I am correct. Now, it's a pretty argument to make that you shouldn't kill four-year-olds and drink their blood, but Michael wasn't making that argument. Yeah. So it's an idiotic thing to say. Basically, Donald Trump's speech was full of straw men. It was just full of these false narratives about what the left in America wants. First yeah. off, there's one thing that I, that I want to address, like one theme that he was making, which is best summed up by one quotation in which he said, quote, the left-wing cultural revolution is designed to overthrow the American revolution. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I'm focusing on that quotation for a second is because in this speech, he was addressing the fact that there are some protesters that are toppling statues of some founding fathers, like, yeah. you know, Thomas Jefferson or George Washington or people that are defacing those monuments. Now, the reason why this is a straw man is because he's pretending that the reason why these protesters are trying to topple these statues is because of the American revolution is because yeah. they're against America in general. Now I believe that we can have nuanced arguments about whether or not it makes sense to have statues of people that own slaves. If they also were known for other things that were good, mm -hmm. like, you know, writing the constitution, defeating the British, all of that. Um, now when it comes to Confederate statues, the Confederacy stood for slavery. Like that's, yeah. That's why they were created. And Confederate statues were put up specifically to intimidate black people during civil rights pushes. So mm -hmm. there's absolutely no reason why those should be up. But yeah. when it comes to founding fathers, I think there's a nuanced argument. But, but the important point is, whether you agree with the toppling of statues or not, the reason why they're doing it is not because they're against the, you know, the democratic principles that they stood for. It's because they're against the fact that, that Thomas Jefferson and George Washington owned slaves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, and, and these, this technique, and these techniques were, to your point, present throughout his comments. And I think they're going to make up a pretty big part of his ongoing presidential run. Because basically, these speeches were trying to cast his 2020 presidential run as a battle against a, quote, new far left fascism. And and Which is hilarious. It, it's yeah, it's ridiculous. But but he 
he is able to do a lot of these bait and switches. So like he's able to dog whistle to the racists who are trying to make sure the Confederate statues stay up by talking specifically by giving examples specifically about Thomas Jefferson and Washington and saying, you know, those are the heroes that we want to, that we want to have statues of while being able to reference, you know, the many Confederate statues that were taken down. And, and they then equates all of this to a quote, um, merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values and indoctrinate our children. That last one is a huge point, right? Like, like it is, especially in extreme conservative circles, a common talking point that the public school system is designed to indoctrinate our children to become like anti-American liberals. And he, he hammers that point a number of times. And then he, 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 you know, draws that back to quote, angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders to face our most sacred memorials and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities. So basically he's then making, making the move saying to erase, to, to tear down these statues, to, to try to acknowledge basically the, the weaknesses of our history is to cause a crime wave. He's making, he's making a, a seamless transition from American history and values directly into law and order as and, his move. And can we just appreciate for a second the fact that in the same speech, he accused the left simultaneously of eroding law and order yeah. and being fascist. Yeah. Like, I don't understand. How can you be an anarchist and a fascist? Yeah. That makes no sense. No, but but it's it's so interesting because that is exactly the rhetorical equation. He's equating those two things that makes this argument possible and makes it effectively to a lot of people. Because he's he actually equates cultural backlash because he talks about cancel culture, he talks about the the backlash against you know, people that are racist when their companies fire them like amy cooper he doesn't give that a specific example but he specifically references like cultural backlash against these people and he's he equates that and calls that far left fascism he calls that you know speech codes restriction of freedom of speech so he's he's intentionally leaning into the misconception that private individuals like us can you know violate the first amendment, violate the second amendment, be fascists. He's saying, um, that the new far left fascism is quote in our schools, in our newsrooms, even in our corporate boardrooms. But the thing is that that's not fascism saying that your company is anti LGBTQ. And that because of that, we won't buy from you is freedom of choice, not fascism. Yeah. And saying that if you're a racist, we don't want you working for us is exactly the kind of at will employment that Republicans are always pushing for. That's like freedom in employing people. You know what you know what I mean? Like that's not yeah. fascism. Yes. So really he is um he's are they they are trying to make the case that disagreeing with them is fascism. And then he goes on to say that 
Quote, that is why I am deploying federal law enforcement to protect our monuments against the rioters and prosecute the offenders to the fullest extent of the law. That sounds a lot like fascism to me. Yeah. Remember, when Michael read the warning signs, was it 10 warning signs of fascism? Yeah, yeah, Like yeah. the 10 warning signs of fascism, one of them was an obsession with law and order. Exactly. Yeah, and, and to go on to even further, he says, he says then, quote, under the executive order I signed last week pertaining to the Veterans Memorial Preservation and Recognition Act and other laws, people who damage or deface federal statues or monuments will get a minimum of 10 years in prison for what amounts to vandalism. Yeah. So huge prison sentences for small crimes that are violating your cultural values, that is fascism because that is yeah. the government coming in and controlling what we're supposed to think, how we're supposed to express ourselves. And, you know, like, yes, I understand that rioting is a crime. Totally. Yeah. Yes, I understand vandalism, and vandalism is, a crime. is a crime. Absolutely. But a minimum sentence of 10 years? That's insane. That is insane. It's like you're you're you know you're you're telling me that if a college student, like I don't know, gets drunk, draws a mustache on, like a, a statue of uh, Thomas Jefferson, you're gonna put them in jail for ten years? Are you serious? Yeah, I I personally know people that would be in jail for ten years. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like I I I do too. You know. And of course, like maybe someone that does that, maybe they get like a little bit of a fine for it because you do want to protect public property. Yeah. Like, sure. But that's law and order. What Trump is talking about is straight up fascism. Yeah. So what I think is kind of interesting about this whole shift and now, and I feel like there are a lot of people that are listening to this and thinking, wait a minute, he's always like, he's always gone full speed ahead on the culture war. Like in the first speech that he gave, like he famously said that Mexico was purposely sending over, you know, mm -hmm. uh, rapists and criminals. Like he's always been about that culture war. And that's absolutely true. However, there was one thing, one strategy that he did in the 2016 election, which I think might have been what made him win. Mm -hmm. And that is a quasi-economic populist message. You see, he was the candidate who was running on, I'm going to protect your pre-existing conditions. I'm going to protect your Medicare. I'm going to protect your Medicaid. I'm going to protect Social Security. I'm the candidate who's going to do that. And to a lot of people that are living paycheck to paycheck... To a lot of people that are living in a country in which there absolutely has been an elitist rule, an economic elitist rule by the establishment, both the Democratic establishment and the Republican establishment, mm -hmm. a message like that, when you are so tired of the status quo, might be appealing. Yeah. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that it's an excuse. For, I'm not excusing a vote for him because there sure. are so many terrible things that Trump did and said that, you know, should have disqualified that I would him. That should have disqualified him. But there were people that were willing to roll the dice because they were so tired of the status quo, they would accept anything. And Hillary Clinton 
in many ways represented the status quo. And that is sure. that is how Trump ran his campaign. Mm -hmm. She is the status quo. She is a continuation of Obama. And ultimately, I think that's what that's one of the big things that um, that helped his campaign. Now, you can argue that, you know, maybe there was the you know, there's the Comey investigation. There was, you know, this statement, there was that statement, whatever. But I think a major part of it was that that economic populist message. So naturally, he's completely throwing all that away. His administration is currently suing to overturn all of the Affordable Care Act, including the protections for pre-existing conditions, budgets that has that have been uh, proposed by the White House have proposed cuts to Medicare and Social Security. He's completely thrown out all uh, all notion of economic populism, mm -hmm. and he's gone full speed ahead in the culture war. Yeah. And I think that maybe under normal times, you might be able to get a coalition together you might be able to get a reasonable coalition together to potentially win. But when we're talking about an economic depression, you know, even if even if it is temporary because of the pandemic, alongside the pandemic which is causing it, most people are not going to be thinking about statues. Most people are not going to be thinking about the culture war. Most people are thinking, "God, I haven't worked and I'm terrified that as soon as rent freezes are lifted, that I'm going to lose my apartment. I'm terrified of my ability to pay bills. I'm terrified of, you know, the fact that um, wages haven't gone up. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are people that received unemployment benefits during this time period that were making more money on unemployment than they were when they were working. And what that says is not that they were making too much on unemployment. It's that they were making so little when they were working. So when you put all of that together and then you focus on cultural issues that most people are probably not thinking about. I mean, Michael and I talk a lot about culture issues because, you know, we're very political people. But most people aren't like they don't, you know, eat, sleep and breathe politics. Yeah. And they're worried about putting food on their table. So yeah, they when you eat, they eat food and sleep, yeah, exactly. rest, and <laughs> breathe exactly. air that isn't full of coronavirus. <laughs> exactly. So that all of that is to say, I don't think that this is going to be an effective strategy for Trump. Mm -hmm. I think that I think it's going to bite him in the ass. Yeah, I think you could be right about that. I think yeah, I think the coalition of people that are really you know convinced by these things with this, where this really gets their attention we're going to vote for trump anyway so that you know above and above that like 30 percent, that 40 to 50 to 55 percent of people who you know he then needs to win over i think you're right are going to be they might be won by a economic message but more likely they're going to be won by economic success and success against this pandemic and focusing on the culture war um that for the most that is that is for the most part totally made up i think i mean it's a lot it, it seems pretty clear like a last ditch effort right like all yeah. else fails try to scare the crap out of them and if they're if they're not as if they're not as afraid of immigrants anymore i guess make them afraid of african-americans um yeah which is you know asking not to be killed by police yeah yeah <laughs> 
a traditionally effective strategy, but we'll see if that works during this period. But Trump, if you're listening, go full steam ahead you... with this. Yeah, don't yeah. don't don't listen to us. We don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and we know he's a huge fan of the show. Yeah, exactly. He listens all the time. Um, but to your point, Nathan, like I just want to go over some of his his polls, matchup polls against Biden, and also approval rating to to kind of put some data behind the discomfort that that he's feeling right now, the pressure he's feeling to try to figure out how to get his sea legs under him in this campaign. Um, and so the real p- clear politics political average puts Trump um, v. Biden at Biden uh, at 49.6 and Trump at 40.9. So, you know, under 10 points of spread, but Biden clearly ahead. And that's what most polls are showing at this point. So, yeah. 538 is showing a series of of polls where um, Biden is on average about eight to nine points ahead with ranging from like plus two to to plus like 19. Um, And, you know, while that's while that's down a little bit from like Biden's biggest lead back in in September and and December with with uh, 11.5 percent spread and 10 percent spread respectively, like that's still a pretty big lead. Um, and that's been increasing recently. And on top of that, you know, that, that coincides directly with, um, a change in Trump's approval rating since coronavirus hit. So according to 538, um, on March 6th, Trump's approval rating was 42.8 with a disapproval rating of 43% or 53%, excuse me. Whereas now his approval rating is 40.7 and his disapproval rating is 55.9. So notice that change. So people um, are, are he lost about 2% on his, on his approval rating, um, and his disapproval rating went up by 3%. So people are more sure that they disapprove of Trump now. Um, yeah. and, and Gallup has that even more dramatic swing from a 49% approval rating in late March to now a 38% approval rating. So, you know, we're like... It's clear that he's under pressure. He's he's grasping at straws for a strategy. Like, you know, being ineffective and riding a positive economic wave is one thing, but being ineffective when the world is collapsing around you is another, you know? It just, it's not gonna, I don't think it's gonna end up being that convincing. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of the Week. So, Nathan, who's our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is the man, the myth, the legend, Yeezy himself, (laughs) Kanye West. Yeah, what the heck, Kanye? Jeez. Come on. So the reason why we feel like we need to call out Kanye West this week it's because he's running for president. Mm-hmm. And he, he announced on Twitter that he is apparently going to be running for president, which, by the way, he ha- he apparently hasn't taken any steps to run for president yet. Yeah. <laughs> and he might have even missed the deadline to be on, like, the and ballot for several the... states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, okay, the reason why Running we're for calling... president is the state of mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason why we're calling out Kanye West as an asshat is because if there's one thing that we have learned from the Trump era, 
It's that expertise and intellect matter. So one of the things that I was very critical of early in the Democratic primary campaign um, was the fact that Andrew Yang had no political experience. And even though I liked the guy, I appreciated a lot of what he said, um, very early on, my original thought was, I don't know if I could vote for this guy because he's going straight from you know entrepreneur to politician. But through the course of the campaign, he proved to himself that he he proved to everybody that he does know what he's talking about. Yeah. You know, he was the numbers guy. Mm-hmm. Kanye West has never done anything like that. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, I mean, let's let's not forget that weird rant that he gave in the Oval Office, which made Trump sound like a reasonable person. <laughs> you know, let's not forget the fact that he's kind of branded himself during this time as this edgelord. Yeah. Like, ooh, you know, I'm an edgelord because, like, unlike everybody else, you know, I'm a free thinker, you know. Unlike all these other Hollywood people, I like Trump. It's like, okay, why do you like Trump? Because I like Trump. It's like, <laughs> what? Yeah. You know, and look, to the extent that Kanye West has done positive political activism in the past, I will give him credit. I'll give him credit for the fact that he has donated money to the families of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I'll give him credit for the fact that a lot of his music has done a lot to speak out against racial injustice. But this is contribute. This, this announcement is just contributing to the viewing of the presidency as this popularity contest Mm -hmm. to seek the ultimate form of celebrity status rather than a legitimate job that needs a legitimate professional to carry out duties that takes a very particular type of person to achieve. It's all about ego. It's not about policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the weirdest thing, and the weirdest thing is that he actually said that he's planning on running a, a campaign that's a cross between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. He's like, if I take, if I take Bernie's base of like 40% and Trump's base of 30%, you know, that's a majority, baby. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how you combine them. (laughs) I guess so. I mean, it would would be like, you know, having a five-star restaurant that served Big Macs, Mm. you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they just, like, don't go together at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, or, like, it would be like getting breakfast at a diner that serves orange juice as an appetizer, but before you drink the orange juice, you have to brush your teeth. <laughs> In other words, it would be miserable and it wouldn't work very well. Yeah, exactly. And I want to give a special little asshat junior shout out to Elon Musk because yeah. he tweeted back, you have my full support, exclamation point. <laughs> okay, dude. What the hell? What the heck? Get it together. <laughs> No, no, he doesn't. <laughs> no, he... God. And the thing is, it's, it's probably a publicity stunt, but I just, yeah. I hate. I hope so. The normalization of launching political ambitions as being a political stunt. You know, yes. if he wants to start a political career and he wants to like, he wants to participate in more political activism, maybe run for something like hell, even, even a house rep, if he wants to do that, you know, go for it, bro. Go for it. 
Yeah. But like just to go straight from, oh, well, I have a lot of followers on Twitter, so I guess I can run the free world. No. I mean, at least no, he has experience just, taking no. credit for other people's things, like making Taylor Swift famous. So, <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> so, anyway, congratulations to Kanye West for being our asshat of, of the week. week. So, after the primary, things have been pretty quiet from the Biden campaign. Now, I shouldn't quite say after the primary, because I guess technically it's not over, but he's the presumptive nominee. I should say after Bernie dropped out, things Wait, got pretty who? quiet. <laughs> and, and you know, maybe that's a strategy, because when your opponent is an idiotic <laughs> madman, you may, like, maybe just laying low and waiting for him to implode makes sense. Yeah. Um, no, some, sometimes, sometimes I do, like, forget that there's a Democratic nominee. Yeah. No, I Biden. do, too. I like, yeah, I, I am, every once in a while it'll just occur to me, like, what has Joe been up to? Like, yeah. and he has not come not out and much. said much. Like, and the funny thing is, we actually, we even have someone from his campaign, Terry McAuliffe, former governor of Virginia. Mm -hmm. He even admitted on the Zoom meeting that their strategy is basically to keep him in the basement and let Trump implode on himself. Yeah. Which, I mean, <laughs> if it works, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, I'm, yeah, I mean, like, Trump is his biggest liability, and yeah. the same is probably true for Biden. Like, yeah. if his biggest if his biggest, you know, pro is his reputation, um, and his biggest drawback is, you know, making linguistic mistakes and yeah. giving speeches that make less than a hundred percent sense, then don't give many speeches and just let the rep reputation speak for itself. Which, by the way, side note. If you are a Trump supporter, you probably shouldn't be making a big deal out of Biden's cognitive problems. Counterside note. If you're a Biden supporter, <laughs> you might not want to make a big deal out of Trump's cognitive problems. Look, look I will say there is, to an extent, a difference. You know, I... Based on what I've seen from them, in different ways, they remind me of my grandmother, uh, mm. the one that uh, that has passed away because of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. I've noticed a lot of similarities. Um, but the, the, the important thing is, when it comes to dementia, which you definitely see lots of aspects in both of them, dementia often infects someone slower when they started out sharp. Mm -hmm. You know, like my grandmother sure. was a very smart woman. And so it actually took a while for it to become really noticeable with her. Mm -hmm. In Biden, I mean, he's a pretty sharp guy, you know? Yeah. I mean, just just look back at that debate that he had with Paul Ryan in which he ran in circles around him while Paul Ryan hopelessly tried to, you know, bite his own tail off. <laughs> um, he was a pretty sharp guy. Trump, never been that sharp, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> so... So I think there is an argument to be made that Trump is probably more cognitively impaired than Joe Biden. But at the end of the day, I don't think that's what either campaign should be making yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the campaign about. But like, Both y'all are crazy. We're voting for you because of policies. Yeah. yeah, but I feel like on the Trump side, you know, cognitive impairment plus literal insanity is probably worse. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely. So Absolutely. But one of the things we did hear about right after Bernie dropped out and, you know, it has been 
ongoing is a task force to cr- try to bring together um, progressives and more moderate Democrats, um, you know, before the convention so that the platform can be influenced by kind of both wings of the Democratic Party, which was, to me, a really, really encouraging sign. Yeah. Um, but one that, you know, we reminded everyone to be not necessarily skeptical of, but don't let your guard down. Yeah. Which brings us to the main argument that we want to make in this segment, which is if Biden does win, if Biden beats Trump, that's not a victory, or at least that's not a progressive victory. And what what I mean by that is not that because Biden is not a progressive or I wouldn't consider him a progressive, that's not a progressive victory. That's not what I mean. Like, I'd be saying the same thing if Bernie were the nominee. What I'm saying is the very first day that Biden is inaugurated, the second that he is sworn into the office, every single Trump policy will still be in place. Mm -hmm. And it'll be on him at least like for the executive orders, it'll be on him to dismantle those executive orders. Yeah. You know, it'll, the victory will be when the policies actually, actually get implemented or when the policies are dismantled. The victory will be when we get back into the Paris climate agreement. The victory will be when, you know, he uh, reinstitutes protections for dreamers. That's when the victories will be. Yeah. It's not him winning. And the reason why it's important to make a distinction for that is we need to hold him accountable to our values. Yeah. To our values as, you know, Democrats or liberals or progressives. And the reason why I am very concerned about Joe Biden specifically and why I want to make the point about the difference between, you know, election victories and actual political victories is because there is something that I read this week about something that Joe Biden is calling for. And I think that this actually embodies the perfect example of something that Michael and I warned you all about in the primary. So he's calling for an increase in corporate taxes from 21% to 28%. Now, you might hear that and think, well, but Nathan, why is that a problem? Don't you want corporations to be taxed more? Hell yeah, I do. But the reason why that's a problem is because before the Trump tax cuts, they were 35%, Mm -hmm. which means that the increase, what Biden is calling for it to be increased to, is less than what it was before the Trump tax cuts, which means that net-wise, it's a Trump victory. Because he managed to lower the corporate tax rate. And also one thing I one little side note I wanted to make, the corporate tax rate's not even the effective corporate tax rate. Yeah, exactly. In fact, uh, according to you know a study from the uh, Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy, the effective tax rate on the largest corporations in the United States is 11.3 percent, mm-hmm. which is like even I was surprised when I read that. Oh yeah, there are <laughs> um, lots and lots of ways you can lower your effective tax rate as a corporation. One of them is to take on more debt. So literally becoming less, um, you know, resilient and stable, potentially needing a bailout more is incentivizing the tax rate. So the reason why I want to bring that up, and we actually, I actually used this exact example 
when talking about one of the debates, like this exact example, when talking about one of the debates um, back during the primary, which was if a Democrat is calling for an increase in the t- corporate tax rate to anything under 25, you know, their corporate is tax. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really need to make sure that we maintain our political activism, even yeah. if Biden wins. If Biden wins, that means we got rid of Trump. And that's great. Celebrate it. You know, God knows I'll be celebrating it. But that is not a true victory. Yeah. At the end of the day, politics is about policy, not party. You know, I might consider myself a Democrat out of necessity, but I view the Democratic Party not as a side, not as a team. I view it as a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And the end is policy that it makes everybody's lives better. And we're more likely to get that under Joe Biden than Donald Trump. But if we do get a Joe Biden presidency, you got to get out there. You got to hold them accountable. You can't just wait until the next election cycle to start caring about politics. You got to get out there. You got to demand better policies. You got to, you know, you got to demand health care for all. You got to demand taxing the rich. You got to demand, uh, you know, citizenship for immigrants. You got to demand an increased protections for LGBTQ people. You got to demand protections uh, for reproductive freedom. Yeah. And I'd say to your, so your like main point is that this is not an obvious victory for progressives. I'd argue that, that in this particular case, we not only need activism from progressives, the people that we're used to seeing activism from, we need activism from generally moderate Democrat voters. Because if you are, if you fall into that group, right, if you are a relatively moderate Democrat, um, you, you liked how things were going under Obama, and you'd be very fine if, if things, you know, can like continue at that level um, of policy and regulation, if it, if it looked exactly the same under Biden. We have lost so much ground since Obama. And so there is a tremendous amount of work that we need to expect from Biden in order to get us back to just neutral. So even if you are a moderate Democrat, you can't just vote in this election. You have to then try to hold him accountable because, you know, to Nathan's point, like the progressive move is a higher corporate tax rate than previously, higher than that 35%. The base Democrat, you know, move needs to be at least 35%. Let's just get back to neutral before Trump. And then the moderate Democrats, if you want, you can step aside and and relax and the progressives can carry the future of the United States with them. But (laughs) we need to make sure that like all of us, whether you're progressive or moderate, are trying to, you know, hold the upcoming administration accountable for undoing all the damage. That's the regulation, the deregulation. That's, you know, the, the harm to the EPA, all of those things we need to hold the administration accountable for fixing because there's just a tremendous amount that needs to be done just to repair the damage. Yeah. But I would, I would still make the further argument that if all we do is go back to how things were before, Trump came along, then all we're doing is creating a situation in which another Trump is going to come. So that's why, like, I would still go further rhetorically than, than Michael did, 
which is to say, not only can we make sure that Joe Biden is not just making things better under Trump adjusted terms by increasing the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%, but also eliminating all of these corporate loopholes Mm -hmm. that make it so the effective tax rate is 11.3% and also instituting policies that actually help people like, you know, Medicare for all universal basic income, free college tuition. And while you're at it, legalize marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we just want to be clear always, because whenever we talk about Biden, we, we want to mention this. There is still an outstanding sexual assault allegation against Biden. Um, it has not been resolved yet. And there's also dozens of sexual assault allegations against Donald Trump that, um, you know, at least one of which he admitted to. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and now we will finish our episode out as we do every week, uh, on a bit of a high note. So Nathan, what is your highlight this week? I mean, I guess my highlight would probably be turning 25. Mm, um, yes. I don't, I don't know if that's a highlight. I, I'm still <laughs> trying to decide. Um, it's, it's like, you know, I, I, it's like I'm going through a, a quarter-life crisis right now. <laughs> Just um, keep playing Witcher. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, but yeah, quarter of a century old and... I'm yelling into a microphone about <laughs> politics. <laughs> Nowhere else you'd rather be, I'm sure. <laughs> Nowhere else I'd rather be, bro. <laughs> and yeah, and happy birthday. That's uh yeah. Thanks, that's man. a big one. Appreciate we it. both turned twenty five this year. So that's yeah. uh it's yeah. definitely a weird one. Michael Michael turned twenty five before me, so Yeah. You could have warned me. Uh, no, I didn't wanna <laughs> I didn't wanna ruin the last few days of twenty four for you. <laughs> <laughs> so Michael, what's what's your highlight? Uh, my highlight, I think, is so. So we had a couple of friends over um, this weekend, um, and it was just great to see them. We like, you know, took precautions. We've both been, you know, quarantining pretty extensively, so we felt pretty comfortable having them visit. Um, and it was just awesome to get some time with other human beings um, and see some really good friends. Had some nice conversations. Um, we do this. We do when we get together these Olympics where we put together a bunch of little little competitions um, and then we keep track of all of them and we see who wins. Um, so we did board games and airsoft and all this stuff. So it was just really, really t- nice time. Nice. Nice. Yeah. All right. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>